We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, from verse 35 to verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35 to 58. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another, there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second, second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May the Lord bless the reading of this word. I've got a mic on. Yep, I'm good. I'll replace those guys. 
Good morning. Uh, it's so good to be here. Thanks, Manuel, for reading for, for us. If you've uh, got a Bible, you can keep it open, but the uh, passages will probably come up on the screen as well. Um, yeah, 1 Corinthians. It's been a while getting through it, hasn't it? Um, I did say uh, to my wife last night as we were going to bed, I said, I don't think I'll be speaking to anybody tomorrow uh, if the heat keeps up. But so well done. You're all here. I think that's pretty impressive because uh, you know, we don't have air conditioning in our building. You don't have air conditioning in your building. But we're here as God's people gathered together around his word and with each other to encourage and build each other up. And so hopefully, uh, you know, you've got a a big idea of the passage already because Eleanor has been so clear in teaching that to us. uh, And hopefully I'll fill some extra things out that are helpful as well. But why don't we pray as God helps us this morning. Gracious God, thanks so, so much for your goodness and love of us that you would send your own son into the world to die on our behalf. That you would bring forgiveness of sins and that you would give us the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord God, this morning, that as we reflect on what it means to be people who are going to get new bodies, uh, that we would understand just how important that is, both for our hope now as we look towards the future, but also as we live now in light of the future. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I say, a few few years ago, in a Bible study group not far away, the topic of heaven was raised. Um, And the Bible study leader began the study by actually asking the group members uh, to give a show of hands as to whether the resurrected Jesus is now a body or a spirit. The results were spirit, 11, body, 0. One helpful member of the group, though, offered the corrective. He's not invisible, though. He's more a little bit like Casper the Friendly Ghost. Uh, that was helpful. Um, it's not the most important question in Christianity, but it is nonetheless a very crucial question in Christianity. Uh, the resurrection is important because it has a bearing on our own resurrection. I wonder how we would have answered that question if it had been posed to us. I know that when I was young, I used to think that when a Christian died, they kind of just become like an angel. Uh, they were kind of a spiritual being that developed wings and sang in the angelic choir praises to God all day. Uh, Such was my imagination. That didn't really grab me uh, all that much, I might add. I used to be in a kid's choir when I was was young. We'd practice for an hour every Sunday afternoon, and it was just excruciating, right? I couldn't wait to get out of there. So I I loved singing, but rehearsal uh, just seemed tedious, and so I couldn't quite imagine how I'd go when I went to heaven. Uh, And I did think it was a good idea to sing praises to God. I thought that was a good idea. But if it had to be all day, and you know how there's no time in heaven, right? Well, you don't know how long the days are, so that just was going to go on and on. And I just kind of hoped that I'd live till I was really old here. Well, Paul has been arguing that the resurrection of Jesus is not just good news for Jesus, it's good for us. The resurrection is good for us. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus is the basis of our hope, that we will be also raised from our deaths. In fact, Paul says that it's the guarantee that we too will be raised from dead. Now, the question Paul addresses today is, what is the nature of our resurrection? Now, that's the essence of the questions that he actually poses right at the beginning there of today's passage, uh, and that he goes on to answer. Verse 35, see it there. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? It's one question, really. Uh, The second question just kind of qualifies the first. But it's important to keep remembering. And so I just want to say it up front, if I can, as we kind of look at this passage today, that Paul isn't simply concerned with the details about our resurrection in the future. 
He's actually primarily concerned about the Corinthian church. He's concerned about the implications of our future resurrection for the way we live our lives now. That's what Paul is primarily concerned about in this passage. Our response to Christ's victory on the cross, uh, the hope of a future glorified resurrected body, is for Christians to stand firm and to abound in the work of the Lord. That's where we get to at the end of this passage in chapter 58, in, sorry, verse 58. And so that's the climax that it's all coming to, and we need to keep that overriding purpose in mind as we work through the passage, but we'll come back to it at the end. Because we begin here with the nature of our resurrection. The first thing to note is that the body that we have now is not exactly the same as our future body. Now, that's what Paul is saying. He uses, you'll notice, an agricultural analogy that we're all familiar with to illustrate the difference. But he also does it uh, to show the appropriateness of the body that God will give us for the setting that we're in. Uh, have a look at it again from verse 36. Uh, having asked their question, uh, he says, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the, of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. That's quite amazing, I think, that God has written this principle of death and resurrection into nature. Uh, when a seed, he says, is placed into the ground, it must die, uh, or I think what he means by that is it ceases to exist in its current form and it dies so as to bring about new life. Uh, the point Paul is making, though, is that the body that grows from the death of the seed is different. The seed doesn't just kind of grow into a big seed. Uh, rather, God gives it an appropriate body for its purpose. In fact, we see it quite clearly in creation. The, the, the various creatures have different bodies appropriate for their setting and purpose. So a fish, for example, has a body perfectly suited for living in water, but useless for living on the land. Uh, and you couldn't get a tree to stand in for the moon uh, because the bodies that God has given to the various parts of creation are appropriate for their setting and purpose. And so when he speaks of their glory, he's actually speaking of the very essence of what something is. And Paul makes the point with great clarity for us in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The bodies that we possess now are not exactly the same as our future bodies will be. They're not fit for God's kingdom. They're not fit for eternal life. Uh, can you imagine being raised to life with your bad back or your chronic fatigue or your arthritis or your diabetes or your depression? No, our resurrection body will be different, Paul says. And this body that we, we live in now is not suitable for life in God's kingdom. However, is that all that we're supposed to see here? That is, that our resurrection bodies will be different. Well, here's the link, I think, with our Bible study leader at the beginning who asked his group the question about whether the resurrected Jesus is now a body or a spirit. Uh, in fact, uh, this Bible study group would have probably fitted in very well with the church in Corinth. It appears that, their thinking, or that the thinking in Corinth was that the possibility of a dead, dead corpse being brought back to life was a terrible doctrine. 
either in Paul's letter, uh, so earlier in Paul's letter, you get the idea that they actually think they're already really spiritual people. They'd received the Holy Spirit. They were exercising their spiritual gifts, different kinds of spiritual gifts. They thought they had already entered the heavenly spiritual existence. To them, the body was corrupt and evil. But Paul won't actually have a bar of that kind of thinking. I mean, no doubt our bodies that will be raised will and must uh, be different in some way, but they're still our bodies that are raised. There's a clear continuity with our bodies in this life and in the next life. But a transformation will take place to make them suitable in God's kingdom. I think the best and perhaps the only illustration that we have is that of the resurrected Jesus himself. You know, Paul has already told us, remember, that Jesus died, he was buried, he was raised to life again, and that he was seen by people. What was it that was missing from the tomb? It was Jesus' body. What was it that people saw when they saw Jesus raised? They saw the embodied, recognisable person of Jesus. The analogy of the, the seeds is meant to point out both the genuine continuity of our resurrected bodies with our bodies now and also their transformation into suitable bodies for their future existence. Now, I imagine you would have all seen a cicada shell. Uh, it's an amazing ability that God's given these little creatures. Uh, they live in the ground in their shell for uh, numbers of, uh, of years, but when they come to the surface to live, they have to shed their shells. Uh, and they somehow manage to get out of their shells and leave the shell intact, which looks virtually the same as the fully-fledged cicada. But while their shell is necessary for living under the ground, they can't remain in their shell. They're transformed so as to be able to live above the ground. There's continuity between life below and life above. Both the shell and the cicada are both recognisable, even though the cicada has been transformed for its new environment. Now, all of this, of course, is good news for us. You will be you and I will be me, resurrected. Now, won't it be good to recognise and to enjoy those we've known on earth without the sin and sickness and grief at, that's also attached to life here? Okay, well, the next section, in the next section, Paul continues to flesh out um, this transformation that takes place. At, and this, his point is that our resurrection bodies are actually going to be superior. They will be superior bodies to our current bodies. Uh, look again at what he says from verse 42. He says, So it is with the resurre resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And you might remember that uh, well, while Jesus lived, he raised a good friend of his, Lazarus, from the dead. 
when he raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, you can read about it, it wasn't the same as his or our future resurrection. Lazarus was resuscitated. He was brought back to life only to die again. He hadn't broken out of his bondage to decay that our earthly bodies exist in. And so Lazarus's body, like ours, is perishable, was perishable. It was dishonourable or it was lowly in comparison to the body that we'll receive. And it was weak. And that's the character of what Paul calls our natural or our earthly bodies. The Corinthians actually would have agreed uh, with that assessment of the human body. The shock for them would have been that the resurrection body could actually be called spiritual. For them, the terms body and spiritual didn't actually go together. Uh, you'll notice that Paul picks up again on his comparison of Adam and Christ. We saw it two weeks ago, uh, the comparison between Adam and Christ. The spiritual body is the body that bears the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's the body that is transformed like Christ's body to be fitted out properly for the life to come which Paul says is imperishable, glorious and powerful. And, and so there, there will be a change at the resurrection, but it won't be a change from bodily to ghostly. The change will be from perishable to imperishable. We all have a natural earthly body like our ancestor Adam. It's corrupted by sin and it will perish. It's the saccada shell, if you like. But if we've accepted the forgiveness of our sins through the death of Jesus on our behalf, then at the resurrection, we'll be fitted out with an imperishable body, a deathless body, a body just like the man from heaven, Jesus. That body will be truly spiritual. Now, what do you reckon all this has to say about six-packs and uh, stretch marks? Now, personally, I think I'm a, a little bit more likely to develop stretch marks than I am a six-pack, uh, but... I mean, over the last 12 months, you don't see me that often, but you see me every now and then. Over the last 12 months, I've been exercising uh, every weekday morning with my wife, Leonie. Uh, I've been getting up early to exercise, and you can't tell the difference at all, can you? <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't actually matter. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. <laughs> it doesn't matter, because whatever, whatever exercise um, I do for this body is ultimately... Some, the Bible says it is of some value, but ultimately futile in this perishable body of death. But how good is the resurrection? We have the assurance that death does not grimly write the last page of our earthly existence, but life does. Life in a truly spiritual body that is powerful, glorious, imperishable, a body that doesn't even need exercise. This certainly puts our, our present sufferings growing old, cellulite, illness, pain, even death, in an entirely different light, doesn't it? But in case you think that the only way to receive these transformed bodies is by dying, uh, Paul actually makes it clear that resurrection bodies are not only for the dead. Have a look at verse 51 there. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. See, here is where our understanding of the resurrection moves away from the analogy of the seed that dies. I mean, certainly those who die will be raised with transformed bodies. But death, notice, is not a prerequisite. We shall not all sleep or die, Paul says. Paul says. 
Resurrection day will come with a world full of people still alive. You and I may not die before the trumpet is sounded to announce the Lord Jesus' return, but we will all be changed. We will all be fitted out with our transformed bodies for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Life is like the dressing room, if you like, before a big match. And here's Paul's point. Whether we've died or whether we're still alive on the last day when Jesus returns, in a split second, all of us will and must be fitted with our new imperishable bodies that are fit for the new heavens and the new earth. So here's the hope of perfecting the real bodily you. That's the only you there really is. Who can imagine a body without weakness, a body without infection or tiredness or sickness or death? And so Paul anticipates the shouts of victory that will fill the air at Christ's return. It will be a victory parade like no other. And the celebrations that followed the last Soccer World Cup for the victors won't register on the Richter scale in comparison to Christ's victorious return. Look what he says in verse 54. He says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might uh, remember the Beaconsfield mine collapse uh, back in April 2006. Uh, Todd Russell, Brant Webb were trapped underground for 14 days while the nation watched on at every nail-biting moment. And it was a stark reminder of the craving that we have for life. We longed for those two guys to live. They longed to live. A reminder of the tenacity by which we seek to hold on to life, of the lengths that we'll go to preserve and save it of the pain and anger that we feel when someone loses it. The ordeal of those two miners that had thrust the reality of our mortality before us yet again. We get angry at death. It wasn't meant to be like this. No, it wasn't. Death is not just a natural and unpleasant phenomenon. The Bible makes it quite clear that it's a punishment from God. But more to the point, it's an evil that exists only because of man's rebellion against God. And so we need to see that the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection is found in the need for sin, both your sin and my sin, to be properly dealt with. That's crucially important for us to understand. If you haven't ever asked God to forgive your sin and to restore your relationship with him, don't leave that. Speak to someone about it today. It's too important to ignore or to put off. Because the euphoria that we witnessed at the announcement that those two miners were alive is nothing compared to the euphoria those in Christ will experience when Christ returns and death is decisively and finally defeated. I mean, right now, we still struggle with sin, with sickness, with death. Our ministry as Christians within church, can so often look weak and unimpressive, just like Paul's often look weak and unimpressive. But then, when Jesus Christ returns, Paul says, then we can say, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God, Paul says, death did its best, but had no claim. 
Well, Paul concludes his argument on the resurrection with a therefore, and it's a critical therefore, uh, because he wants them to be crystal clear about the implications of our future resurrection for the way that we live our lives now. Have a look at verse 58. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. See, our, our coming resurrection is not just information. It, it ought to produce a level of transformation in, in us. There ought to be an impact on our thinking and actions now while we await Jesus' return. The future shapes our present actions, or it should. We should be living resurrection-driven lives. Paul says that resurrection-driven lives are steadfast. They're immovable. Some Christians at Corinth had become doubtful about the resurrection. Their whole salvation was on the line. But Paul has reminded them that the resurrection, along with the rest of the gospel, was a matter of first importance for their salvation. If there's no resurrection, Paul, Paul says, then his preaching is in vain. And so is their salvation in vain. And the goal of Bible teaching is that we would be steady and unshakable. We need to be mature Christians. Our roots need to go down deep and be anchored deep in the truths of the gospel. We're not to be double-minded, as uh, James puts it, tossed around by every wind of teaching and the craftiness of men. Troubles shouldn't shake our confidence in Jesus. Sadness, pain, sickness, personal hurts, etc., shouldn't cause us to move away from the gospel. We can stake our lives on the future that Jesus has won for us. The second implication of having had our sins forgiven is that we would abound in the work of the Lord, notice he says. It's the uh, other really important outcome of living resurrection-driven lives. And what Paul means by the work of the Lord is gospel ministry. Uh, it's about doing everything you can to help make Christ known. Our hope of glory is the strongest incentive for abounding in the work of the Lord, especially when the going's tough, or even if it just seems unexciting, continuing to live for Christ each day. There are two significant phrases that Paul has repeated often and that shape everything that we labour for in this life. We either labour in vain or we labour in the Lord. Paul urges us to abound in the work of the Lord because if we are in the Lord, then our labour is, and our labour is in the Lord, then we can be assured by Christ's resurrection that it's not done in vain. There's no shortage of labouring in our society, uh, much of which is for good things. We know that, don't we? But if all we labour for are things that won't last beyond this world, then Paul would say that they are ultimately in vain. If the bulk of your labour is for academic excellence, Paul would say in vain. For a successful business, in vain. For sporting achievement, in vain. For good looks and health, in vain. For fame and popularity, in vain. Or even just for keeping up with the Joneses, all in vain. If a Christian has no time or energy to invest in gospel ministry because of their labours in other areas, they're not living resurrection-driven lives. Uh, in, a, in a briefing article, Christopher Ash. Uh, hit the nail on the head for our ageing population, which I know is not most of us here, but let, us just read, let me just read this snippet to you because I think it's got the heart of what, what's going on. 
He says here, he says, one of the saddest sights in contemporary Western churches is that of healthy retired Christians feverishly ensuring that they use their remaining money to savour as many as possible of the pleasures of this world. Typically, this shows itself in extravagant travel plans while they are still healthy, as, the, as if the onset of old age and the coming of death would render those travel plans inaccessible. But that is not so. There is no saga holiday in this age that will begin to rival the joys and wonders of ruling the new heavens and the new earth in the age to come. And he goes on, so let us not panic as old age sets in, but keep our hopes firmly on the substantial hope of bodily life to the full in the age to come. See, our hope for resurrection sets us free to give ourselves to the work of the Lord. And we do it with the great confidence that we... Uh, sorry, we, we do it with the great confidence that what we do has real value and purpose, not only for now, but for eternity. In fact, the hope of the resurrection enables us to consider what we do. It enables us to consider what we do with our time, or how we spend our money, what tasks and goals that we ought to pursue. Why give yourself to vain pursuits when you can give yourself fully to the work of the Lord? knowing that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Have a think about what the focus of your labours are. You know, one of the big questions is, do I care about the lost in our world who don't know the love of God for them? Those who don't know that unless they have their sins forgiven, they're destined to face God's judgement. Do I think about them? Do I care about those people? Do I hurt for those people? Do I love them like Jesus loves them? Are you maximising every opportunity that you have for the cause of Jesus Christ? Because living for the resurrection means dying to self every day in love for the salvation of others. Let's pray. Our gracious, gracious and loving God, we thank you that in your mercy, in your grace, you sent your own son who wept when he looked on Jerusalem and saw them rebelling against you, even though they knew about you. Who longed for them to know the truth that in him there is salvation, forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Father, thank you for giving us these bodies that we live in now that are able to live and work and achieve and do all kinds of wonderful things. We pray, Lord God, that we would use them well in the things that you give us to do. And help us, Father, as we do the things that we have to do, that we would continue to recognise that the work of the Lord is that which lasts forever. As we help the message of Jesus be known and people come to know the Lord Jesus and grow in him so that they too might have resurrection bodies fit to live with you forever. And so thank you for our time together this morning. Please keep encouraging us to reflect on these things and to work out how we respond to them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.